We are Michael Vesey in London, England. And Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. More importantly, you are the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be. We're here to get you there. For show notes with links and resources mentioned today and for other GC resources like downloads, just visit our blog, theecommerceleader.com. Welcome to the e-commerce leader podcast. In this fun episode, Michael is going to break down 10 powerful interviews he's done with top Amazon experts. Now, Michael, you've done over 500 episodes now on the amazing FBA podcast. That's gone on for years. When did you start? Years ago, I suppose, huh? I even lose track. I think it's 2015, September okay. 2015, that it really kicked off. And I think I did my first sort of attempt in July just to see if it would work. So yeah, I, I don't, however long that is, I lose track. <laughs> and you've interviewed some fantastic people over the years. Oh, yeah. And yeah, for sure. tremendous, you know, expertise. And your show is fantastic. If you search for anything related to Amazon selling or third-party selling or e-commerce, the amazing FBA podcast pops up on, on all the players, top of the lists everywhere. And uh, so it's really fun to be able to kind of mine the, the depths of the, you know, episodes, really kind of dig through what you've done. So we're just going to make this a listicle where we go down your list of, of 10 powerful business concepts. So let's jump into it. Why don't you share your first podcast guest? I guess you should give us the reference number, what episode it was in the Amazing FBA. And uh, so people can go check them out uh, as they get their interests peaked as you share about the ideas. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, just to um, slightly confuse the issue that I have a parallel podcast called the 10K Collective Podcast, which is more geared to the needs of the six, seven, and eight figure Amazon sellers. Amazing yeah. FBA is very broad. Yeah. Broadly speaking, though, it is more geared to, to people who are earlier stages. So some of the stuff has got different reference numbers uh, because it's in two series. One is the, the sort of general Amazing FBA series, which goes yeah. from naught to 500 or whatever it is now. And the other one is uh, series one, which is the 10K Collective Podcast. So then maybe we might skip the numbers and just ask people to put into the amazing finding amazing fba podcast and then search by guest name is what i would suggest okay great it's going to be easier yeah let's, so let's jump have, into it what's yeah. your first you know expert and the concept they shared and why was it so powerful great so the first couple of people that i had on as a, a pair of people actually uh, jason jason both real powerhouses in their respective fields jason boyce sold on amazon for i think about 17 years now runs a, a really really good agency he got to eight figures in, in multiple years while he was selling with his brothers rick cesari was behind things like the lean green grinning machine and the uh, gopro camera and sonic air toothbrush so he's actually got several products to over a billion dollars in sales with a b so he was really one of the, the movers and shakers behind the whole kind of what do you call it sort of jvc i tried tend not to watch it myself but the tv programs where they sell you stuff and very QVC? very effectively that's the one yeah <laughs> yeah so obviously um the real powerhouse of the marketing thing but really the first concept so these are by the way 10 concepts a couple of the guests are giving me i think a couple of concepts uh, the first concept is really about the nature of selling on amazon and really there are two powerful things that uh, Jason Boy said from bitter experience, sometimes some good experience. First thing is Amazon is not your cuddly friend. They're a shark. <laughs> and the second thing is 
as he says, if you're not on Amazon, you're not on the internet. Now, that's a very challenging thing to say to a Shopify store owner, but that's his contention. And there is some logic behind it. And there's also some strong discussions to be had. But I think those two things are very thought provoking starting points, at mm -hmm. least for yeah. how one should therefore operate. And I broadly speaking, I suppose what he's saying is his experience, and it's very, very Amazon centric. So yeah. I had to take that in context is that you have to be on Amazon, but you have to be very aware of what you're doing and the fact that you're swimming with a shark and therefore, you know, act appropriately, i.e. defensively and have a defensive strategy. Swimming with a shark. That sounds dangerous. It does. Did he have some scary stories and all that kind of thing about why he felt like Amazon was not your cuddly, you know, blanket of warmth and happiness <laughs> in your business? Yes, he did. I mean, broadly speaking, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, if you're reselling stuff, then one of the things, and, and I don't think this is going to apply to you and your, your replays guys necessarily, because I think that that big dynamics probably happened already. But one of the things is if you're reselling stuff, Amazon will try and go and approach those guys and, and uh, form a relationship directly. Jason's defensive strategy, it's like a sort of arms race. And, and because he sold for 17 years, you can really see the trend, which is the second thing I was going to talk about, yeah. the, the second point that grows out of this. But just to answer the point of how to defend yourself, when Amazon started going to his wholesale or replans contacts and reselling the stuff he was reselling, directly cutting out him out as a middleman, he would create exclusive products. So he mm -hmm. wasn't the private labeler, but the manufacturers he was working with would create exclusive mm -hmm. products for him, which yeah. is an interesting halfway house. And then Amazon would either go to them and threaten to kick them off the platform they didn't sell direct to them, or possibly just start private labeling their own version. Then he wow. moved over into private labeling, and Amazon just sort of started copying the basic products uh, occasionally although it's harder to do would go direct to his competition his sorry his manufacturer in china although that's hard to do and then really what it came down to is a defensive strategy there's good news at the end of this horrible tale which is that amazon is horrendously bad amazingly and kind of almost hilariously at listing stuff on their own platform if you ever sell directly to amazon and i would tell everyone never mm -hmm. ever to do this what they'll do is you'll take your nine beautifully produced images and replace them with two images on white and horrible boring bullet points so that is where our opportunity is and they are still mm -hmm. terrible at selling on amazon amazon is terrible at selling on amazon weird thing to say but their listings stink and therefore that's our opportunity is to just okay. be fantastic at branding of course particularly visual branding mostly photography and nowadays it's video as well. Wow, love it. Okay, so that was guest number one and and, and two, Jason and Rick, and yeah. concept number one. And then is there the second concept from, from those guys? Yeah, I mean, really, it's not so much a concept as my observation uh, or my, you know, experience if you like through them of the journey so i was i've been selling mm -hmm. on amazon since 2014 and it's changed a lot in that time but i think jason started in something like 2003 so he's really had i mean pretty much from the earliest days that you could actually sell on amazon as a third-party seller so he's really seen the the whole trend and that of course yeah. is within the amazon space it reflects quite a lot of the the broader e-commerce space as well and i think really as i've described the sort of defensive strategies he's had to make thus i would suggest that the the I suppose there's a parallel between, if you like, the history of Amazon and what people did to make money as third-party sellers and the sort of business models that I would suggest people go through in order to start with something simple but end up with something that is defensible, I guess. And that's the journey that Rick was, sorry, 
that Jason was forced to make. Interesting. And yeah. um, that really comes from, you know, simply reselling and the sort of retail arbitrage, online arbitrage or wholesale sourcing type thing through the, as I've mentioned, the getting exclusive products made for you mm-hmm. through, you know, through proper wholesale relationships and replay sits somewhere in between, I guess, retail arb mm-hmm. and online arb and, and wholesale. Sure. So it's an interesting part of the journey to make but i would suggest also if you really want to create a defensible business you're going to eventually end up pushed by that dynamics towards private labeling and or sort of unique products which wow. costs more money but is more defensible and the business you create thus is more sellable so it's a sort I of love, journey yeah i love that from simple to defensible yeah pretty much that's a journey that's really <laughs> that's interesting a idea. From yeah. simple it's a to big defensible. journey obviously because yeah. simple is simple to start and mm-hmm. i think you know, and I, I know that your philosophy is like this, and I think you're much better than me at, at this, which is to keep things simple. And you have that that knack of that sort of, you know, I know you're from California originally. You've got that California optimism and, and an American optimism more generally. And, and that's a fantastic <laughs> thing because otherwise you can overthink yeah. and never start. And I did that for like 15 years of my life right. uh, before I really got started in, in business online in, in, in uh, the end about the age of 40. And it took 20, 15 years. So the nice thing about reselling is you just start and it costs you yeah. 100 bucks, 200 bucks yeah. to start. And you learn yeah stuff very quickly by doing which is fine and it's great to start with things that don't scale which is nearly a concept that i i brought in from will chernan but the context was too complicated he said start with things that don't scale which is great but equally if you do something simple it's easy for other people to copy so it's not defensible so start simple with the understanding that you're going to need to develop and that's great if you start complex you never start if mm-hmm. you stay simple, it's not defensible and you'll do that horrible thing where you go round in circles working really, really hard and wondering why I'm making less and less profit over time yeah. rather than more. And the answer mm-hmm. is because yeah, your business model isn't defensible. I love it, man. I love it. So the third concept is from a guest, Dylan. Who, who's Dylan and what's the third concept? So Dylan Frost is part of the wholesale formula. Those are guys, Dylan and Dan. They're both Kentucky boys. It doesn't mean that much to me, except that I've watched, I think, was it called Faithless or something? There were some some TV shows, which means I know nothing about reality of Kentucky life. But they seem sort of very feet on the ground kind of guys. And they built businesses. They didn't have a lot of money to start. They started with arbitrage and retail and stuff. And they've developed through to mostly focusing on wholesale. Their clients, I think, have done, they've done themselves. They've had sort of eight-figure years, sort of 20 million a year plus uh, revenue and their clients have collectively done i think over a billion dollars in sales now so they, wow. they really know how to teach this stuff yeah. and dylan was talking to me about really the difference between private label and wholesale and i think it's really important in the early stages there's the keeping it simple and then there's a conceptual framework understanding of the context and there can be it to, to that point which seems to be another theme that's emerging organically is simple versus complex i mean i think it's important to understand have a bit of context as to what is it you're doing? What business model are mm-hmm. you actually operating? Yeah. And that's okay. You don't need to be too complicated. But if you think you're driving a go-kart and you're driving, you know, uh, a, a Porsche, it, you, the driving starts going to kill you. So you need to be clear at least what it is you're doing. And I think yeah. the differences between private label and wholesale are very interesting because they have some similarities. I would say if you start with the easiest but least defensible on an arbitrage or retail arbitrage now, online arbitrage maybe, 
wholesale is the next obvious step which is that you are reselling but you have or replens is that sweet spot in between right where mm-hmm. you get replenishable stuff i.e you you don't have that tragic thing where you find a wonderful thing you sell a load of it and you go back and you can't sell anymore so it's the next natural step from replens private label is one of those things that you naturally end up getting pushed towards as well and the wholesale formula guys do do some private labeling so you don't have to be either or you can blend them and some of the people in my masterminds are blend a hell of a lot of wholesale like yeah. to the tune of 10 million uh, bucks a year but are also adding on their own private label products because it turns out it's really really hard to sell a wholesale based business so this is where that continuum you know fits it's so funny you mentioned this one i don't know if you watched my uh, my go live into our replens group yesterday from my kayak in the middle of lake tap oh yeah i saw a bit of that and i was really intrigued by the kayak i've got i thought i've got to watch this but i haven't got time so yeah yeah, i did a live from my kayak (laughs) and i did my conversation was called the the long game and it one of my things i shared as an encouragement was just understanding that your business model is not your business Mm -hmm. and that your business model is something that you run like a vehicle you learn to drive it and you go someplace and it's a good time and it's just exactly what you were just sharing so very very similar to the you know dylan frost concept i guess Mm -hmm. and that is that you can certainly learn replens as a model scale Mm -hmm. it up have a great time with it yeah automate process add team members Really focus on your financials so you know exactly what you're doing. And then that frees you up to explore different business models. And that's a very common journey from wholesale selling to private label selling. And that, I guess both of those would be a step, not beyond, but just, you know, a, a, an incremental step, you know, after retail arbitrage or replins. And so it's interesting to hear the, the bigger, you know, sellers. That is generally a, a path to scale, is scaling with wholesale and then being safer more secure with private label concepts what i would say yeah that the, agree with uh what you're saying and i i'm looking forward to watching that kayak video because even visually it was very resting i'm like oh there's a kayak it's very nice what's, what's jason up to so yeah. great great marketing by the way yeah so to your points yes your business is not your business model very important what i would say is your skill set and your understanding of context which is slightly different things but related are not the same as your business or your business model either. But the lovely thing is that your business can build on, for example, replan strategy and move Mm -hmm. into wholesale. The skill set you need in terms of analyzing what's going on on Amazon is probably pretty similar. You've got stock management skill, you've got cash management, you've got people management processes. A lot of the things can be taken over, but some of the things will be different and you need to be very aware what's the same, what's different. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things would be more the business to business skills, really the business to business sales skills, I think is what wholesale is all focused on. So yes, you've got a lot of things that are similar enough, that, but as long as you know what's Mm -hmm. different, Yep. which is still very important. The, the only thing I would say about that is that the danger of, just because it's on Amazon, you think it's the same business model, the characteristics of the business model as an abstract thing, how the cash flows, what's defensible about it, what isn't. I think that abstract sense, you need to right. be very clear-minded about that, mm-hmm. more to your point, really. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Love it. And of course, when people start to work on their private label products, that's when they do enter my uh, domain, if you will, in terms of Shopify sites. Mm. And it's always so fun. I looked on Udemy, I think I'm over 36,000 students now in my Udemy courses for all things Shopify related. And uh, so that that is a you know an incremental step and a journey towards more defensible strategies. Okay, so let's keep going. Your fourth business concept from your fourth guest was a guy, Kevin. What's his deal? Who, who's he and what does he talk about? 
Kevin King is a sort of giant of Amazon guru sort of teaching and stuff. I think he's a very, very sharp guy. I remember speaking to him in about 2016 when he was doing really well selling on Amazon and a friend of, of a friend introduced us and he gave just, he spat, you know, a value after value. It was just in tons of intensely great stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, we got off air and I said to him, dude, you should do consulting. And he said, nah, I'm making enough money for my Amazon course. And next thing you know, of course, um, somebody's got his, their hooks into him and he's been these days uh, being very much consultant plugged into the Helium 10 universe with Manny Coates thing so he is a genuine you know expert in visual selling he's he's been in the retail space for about 20-25 years now and on Amazon for quite a long time and the thing that he came up with he's always coming up with interesting concepts he's very got very much got his finger on the pulse but one thing he said it's a very simple thing around the product selection thing which is the absolute obsession of any private label seller or or even more of would-be private label sellers the really established people by the way I noticed aren't, aren't obsessed with product selection they're obsessed with cash management and stock management interestingly to which more later but this was really about what people call product selection now of course I I think that's completely the wrong word I think it's market selection or more specifically keyword driven market selection and that's a very narrow way of looking at the universe that I think is in itself risky and I'm sure that Kevin would agree but he basically said instead of thinking about a, a sort of trying to dominate a very specific four or five set of keywords the wiser approach often especially in very competitive markets and most of them are competitive in 2021 and beyond is to go for long tail keyword things in other words he, he said if you're trying to get into a house it's going to be a lot easier if there are a lot of doors and a lot of windows mm-hmm. as opposed to one main door which makes a lot of sense so instead of I'm a, i always think of the most uh, obvious examples are the ones that i spent hours working on with my clients and of course i don't want to reveal their keywords because everyone's paranoid about that but Let's say, for example, you're trying to sell on iPhone stand. You're probably not going to have a trillion words that aren't things like iPhone stand, stand for iPhone, smartphone holder, etc., etc. right? But that's going to be really hard to break into, apart from the fact that, by the way, don't do this at home. That's a horrendous idea on Amazon anyway. Although there are marketplaces where you can still uh, make money with those kinds of keywords, but not Amazon. But you could try and find something that has uh, a lot more ways in. I'm just trying to think of something. I don't mm-hmm. have a neat thing mm-hmm. off the top of my head. But there are certain types of, of products where there isn't sure. a single keyword or set of keywords yeah. that neatly defines it. There are yeah. four, five, six obvious main keywords that could describe it. And mm-hmm. then there are lots and lots of smaller ones. And that's his basic concept. It's wise to go for that kind of product, mm-hmm. win the longer tail keywords, and over time work your way to winning ranking for the short tail keywords. And his name was Kevin King again. Kevin King, Did yes. He give any kind of tips tools or resources for doing is that helium 10 or like what's the what's the tool set for finding those kind of long tail keyword opportunities yeah i guess he would talk helium 10 but i mean partly it's just a question of you know trying stuff and then seeing what happens but that sounds very very vague but what i mean is in your journey through a bunch of keywords and product ideas you're bound to come across this in my experience you will come across some stuff that's just dominated by a handful of keywords Mm -hmm. and it's pretty obvious who the big players are and it's dominated i mean you just there's not much point in going to these markets unless you have very deep pockets and a really great differentiation point and very very good quality suppliers as well i would say yeah but as you go along sometimes you'll find a market which is tempted to dismiss and i think that Mm -hmm. at that point that's when you should actually switch on your your kind of you know opportunity meter and go Aha, hang on a second yeah and we've talked about that before in our prior episodes when we talk about total addressable market and the switchable uh total addressable market and the idea of looking for the non-dominated mm-hmm. you know niches and finding the, the, these niches that are just totally fractured and really don't have any dominant players now that might be a warning to you to stay out it uh, might also be an invitation for you 
to build a brand in that space. Slight, yeah. slight nuance on that. I mean, yes, it does tie into that discussion. Well, I guess what I'm talking about isn't the the competition and how fractured mm-hmm. they are. It's about it's the, the search terms sure. and the keywords yeah. that the consumers use that they aren't as incredibly unified and simple in, in one set. Sure. So it's a slightly different point. Yeah. Um, it may again be a warning sign because it's going to be a little bit harder to yeah. target in a simpler way, but it's more winnable probably. So Love it's it. broadly speaking, a very similar sort of strategy to that that's been played on Google for years. And I guess if you have a blog mm-hmm. attached to your Shopify site, this would be a really standard thing as well that you aim for the longer tail keywords and you try and rank for those mm-hmm. as such, you start to get ranking juice for the medium tail keywords. You start to target those and yeah. you start to get ranking juice over time for the short tail keywords that really have the, the high search volume. Yeah. Okay, so great. It's an old school, but but important thing. All right. So your fifth business concept is from Stephen, somebody. What's Who's Stephen and what's the concept? Stephen Summers from Marketplace Superheroes. So he's really talking about, he's also a, a person who very much focuses on private label and product research. I'm in a way, sorry to, to talk about it twice, but it's such a big obsession and important point that, you know, that's why I thought it was worth referencing twice. Really, it's about how you define success. And, and it's an important um, thing that actually can be very nebulous when you say, people often say to me, if they're starting off with a private label, product or even sometimes more established sellers haven't defined success and they just keep selling stuff because it has revenue but does it have much profit and and you know that, that kind of question so it really comes down to a, a meta concept which is defining what is a winner and there and then mm-hmm. a more straightforward concept which is their definition of a winner with private labeling is that it will double the initial investment within nine months which is actually putting the bar reasonably low but nevertheless it's quite a rational and and very measurable simple definition Double the initial investment in nine months. So yeah, if you so invested $10,000 in your cost of goods hmm. to get it all going, you'd want to have $20,000 by the end of nine months. Yeah. Now, I didn't have the discussion with him yeah. in enough detail. I don't remember anyway exactly what uh, he meant by initial investment. Knowing me, that's exactly the sort mm-hmm. of thing I'd pin somebody down on. So if you want to go and, and uh, listen, that the pro- the podcast was called Product Research for Amazon with Stephen Summers of Marketplace Superheroes. Not a very imaginative title, so you should be able to find it. So I can't remember what it meant by initial investment. For me, initial investment would be all the money you put in up front. So that would include the cost of goods sold, mm-hmm. that would include freight, that would include any mm-hmm. import duty, etc. Yeah. So I'd probably define it that way. There's not going to be a monster difference between the two. No, I love that. And I love the emphasis on making money. You know me, like, I, I, I mean, I, I love the business models that have high, you know, return on investment. Mm. And so that's just what we focused on for a long, long time. And I do always worry, in a way, I don't know why I worry for other people, but I worry for people who have a high velocity, you know, sales business with no profit or or low profit they you know obviously can improve margins but if you run it that way for too long you get used to it and that's just a lot of hard work for a little payoff many times and so the models that can generate good solid returns i think are smaller frequently to run at a level that gives you a big payday and obviously, it helps you clarify what you're in business for, which is the bottom line. And, I, you know, I think those are important concepts and, and valuable ideas. So, Stephen Summers, that's great. Love that one. Yeah. And just to say on that, I'm, just to clarify, that is for private label customers or, or, you know, concepts. Yeah. 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 And the other thing to say is, on the one hand, the one extreme is you don't ever worry about profit. And, and you're just saying 
absolutely rightly you have to make sure you get into the habit of doing that and as you say it is a habit as, as you said choose the rut you're going to be in because you're going to be in for a long time remember that yep. phrase from a podcast it's a very mm-hmm. you know everyday phrase but it's really very true whatever habits you get into good or bad you're going to tend to stick so you're right having said that it is also a corrective to this insane idea that you can replace your day job in 12 months from a private label business mm-hmm. from scratch and mm-hmm. and i have had clients come to me who've had that promise made to them in 2020 which blew my mind in 2014 that was just about doable maybe so i think that doubling the investment in nine months yeah it is actually a very positive result but it's quite a humble sort of thing to aim for it's very realistic as well mm-hmm. so that's why it really struck yeah. me as really good wisdom as well yeah and i guess i should just tune up that one for one second with the understanding that if you're just starting out in day one or week one or year one on on online selling your first goal is to find something to sell and to get it sold and you'll learn in that process and so after doing this for whatever it's been 13 years or something like that for us we just set the bar for ourselves very very differently we don't that's not the goal you know after a decade of doing it just making sales isn't the goal but when you're starting out just you know get something that you can sell learn the mathematics learn you know how to put together a profit and loss statement you know the cash you made and and the expenses you had and what happened at the end and do that on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis. If you just go through that cycle for a year or two and you're learning the ropes, you're in a great place. And so I don't want to discourage people by saying, hey, you've got to have a super high profitable product from day one. It's not realistic frequently. And so I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, discourage people with my grumpy old man, you know, (laughs) old seller commentary. But anyway, just wanted to make sure I said that. So no, good point. And in other words, I suppose to put it in another way, I think um, Seth Godin put this as often very, very well. He said, you've got to have a time and you've got to have a number. And you're going to stop at that time that time or that number. In other words, if your business hasn't got to profit or cash flow positive or whatever mm-hmm. it is you're defining, profit is a good number, then yeah. uh, you've got to stop. And I think you're absolutely right that people can for a very long time do this this trap it's not so much no profit on amazon because that is too soul destroying to keep going it's when you've mm-hmm. got revenue and you've got profit but there's not anything like as much as you think until you do the sums at the end of the year mm-hmm. that's kind of soul destroying i've got a couple of clients in that situation at the moment and yeah. i can see a couple of habits that they've got in their business you adding you know too much overhead with staff too quickly over investing in products of which the quality is fantastic but the cash flow characteristics are awful mm-hmm. etc that i, I mm-hmm. look at it i think that's kind of tragic if you're making five percent on a million dollars a year and you've got two business partners very quickly the personal income from that is incredibly disappointing mm-hmm. for the risk yeah. and effort and yeah. that's where you're, you're absolutely bang on that's the point in the process of business development where you really have to take stock at the mm-hmm. beginning equally you you should probably set yourself the opposite goal which is make no profit for the first year or mm-hmm. begin to get into profit if you look at yeah. the last three months in isolation but for the year as a whole it's loss making but you've established yourself in a in mm-hmm. a, a category and so forth so yeah you're yeah. right it's it's a nuanced business sorry this is a great one to just keep camping on it for is a yeah. before we get on to number six here sure. but let me just say this final commentary what you'll find over time, and I think, Michael, you probably see this as much as, as I do, is you work with a lot of clients and coaching and students and in, in, uh, looking at their sites and their products and how they do their business. You frequently will find very profitable small businesses that can be run profitably but just have reasons why they don't get huge. Hmm. And then you have bigger product opportunities that can be omni-channel, that can be huge but are lower profit 
and can be no profit. Yeah. And it's almost yeah. like it's like a different plant in your garden. One will one will grow really, really high, but there's no fruit on the tree. And the other one is a shrub, but it's really fruity and it's got a lot of terrific fruit on it. And it's just two different businesses. And I think part of the process at the beginning of starting out is understanding what business your you know business model you've got and the the aspects of it. Yeah, I, you need to be clear about. Again, it comes down to business model discussion, doesn't it? it if a yeah. venture capitalist invests in something like Uber, they expect it to lose cash and yeah. lose profit and make you know make a loss, which are two separate things, by the way, for a long time. The yeah. question is whether they're in future they're going to get a massive payoff, uh, right. and that's a risky approach. But at least there's a rationale to it. Right. What is soul destroying is to do something where your intention was to make profit from about month six, and you make no profit for three years, and that yeah. can be hap- that can be done alarmingly easily and yeah you're right (laughs) and that makes no sense at all well let's keep going on our list here so your sixth business concept is uh three classic stock management errors who taught you that and what's that concept all about this is a chap called uh, Marvin Harris from Ovals with a Z or a Z. And they uh, he's a management consultant who actually he's got tons and tons of experience in this area. I don't think he's he's sort of prepackaged himself in a neat enough kind of way compared to Helium 10 or whatever to, to neatly say exactly what he does. But he's certainly very good at the sort of strategy behind sort of integrating things like your your customer expectations, stock management, that sort of thing. But we specifically talked about inventory management because for the more established um, players, and this is, by the way, very true, even more true, I would say, in online arbitrage or retail arbitrage or replans than it is for a private label seller of the same kind of revenue size. Because okay. I know friends of mine who, who was private label sellers would make the same revenue with 10 to 20 mm-hmm. product lines who would have to manage five, 600 product lines as, as, as retail arbitrages. You so stock management is okay, so really the, important. So the stock management errors what are the three errors what are they so the three errors the first one is general inventory uh, item errors so spoilage and location errors so location errors would be you think it's in warehouse a but it's in mm-hmm. warehouse b now mm-hmm. if amazon does a lot of the warehousing for you you could get lazy about it but as i'm going to talk uh, about it one of the uh, trends of 2020 that is definitely continuing into 2021 and i can see only being worse in q4 is going to be the the fact that amazon cannot cope with all your inventory needs so you're going to have mm-hmm. to be much more aware of where your inventory is it's going to be in more places if you're starting out maybe in a garage or whatever your bedroom and yeah. amazon but in the end if you're doing it at scale it's going to be in a third-party warehouse it may be a prep center particularly if you're reselling actually and uh, you know it might end up in lots of different places so location areas is kind of obvious but it's yeah. something you really have to see coming that if you're managing as a retail arbitrage 400 product lines yes. with three different locations for stock yeah. and then x number of units in each one you really really have to get on top of it and fairly early actually as well that's interesting location management of your product yeah uh, you know what to be honest, I hear about those things in my coaching conversations, and I've never had somebody stick uh, such a fine point on it. Hmm. So three classic stock management errors. The first one is location confusion, I guess you could call it. it? What's the second one? Well, he calls it general inventory item errors, which includes location. The spoilage as well, which is when somebody's dropped something or your chocolates melted in Florida or, you know, your your supplements have reached a sell-by date as well. So there's that as well, which is, so there's just, once you get into inventory management, kind of unsurprisingly, when you think about the business Mm -hmm. model, Mm -hmm. uh, but we kind of forget that there's just a lot of work around that. And if Mm -hmm. you don't have systems in place, or at least start developing them early, yeah you get in big trouble so the second error is monitoring errors so in other words there's a system 
and then there's actually in the warehouse and it could be as simple as the system is you've got a spreadsheet on your computer and the warehouse is your garage that's a bit more manageable but the sort of blue collar approach to things could be really helpful like go and get your hands dirty and literally check your inventory yourself once a week mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you may find some big disparities so that's that's actually i think a really horrible error because when you think you know something and you, and it's wrong that's when you can go into really big trouble for example if you were selling even on amazon if you were selling items either fulfilled by merchants you know because a fba's run out of stock you know the amazon warehouse system cannot accept more stock or refuses to accept it and you make a promise to somebody by selling something on Amazon yeah. and you think you had 10 to sell and you make 10 sales on Monday and you go into your garage to go and fulfill them and you had eight. Guess what? You're going to have to cancel those two orders. And if you cancel several more orders that week, Amazon could even suspend your entire account because if you keep canceling orders, that really affects your order defect rate. So this is a very practical, very you know yeah. potentially business threatening problem and you just have to work really really hard to to work on this and and it's not an easy thing to solve but it's just critical so you've got to get started monitoring errors that yeah. is so interesting two stories popped in my mind i'm debating whether i should mention one well i'll say it at just the highest level familiar with a recent story of someone who installed cameras in their warehouse discovered theft was occurring mm. and had to deal with it and but the cameras was the first indication but then the monitoring of inventory and stock would have been a prior indication but it did you know it wasn't as bucked down maybe as could have been to reveal such theft that's interesting the other story that comes in my mind immediately as you mentioned this is we have a tool in the legendary seller toolkit that's a reimbursement process and many amazon sellers who sell at high volume amazon owes them money Oh, yeah. And there are services that charge 25% commission to kick off those re, you know, reimbursement requests. Our software tees it up for you. You do it yourself, and we don't take any cut. It's just a tool that we have available. And I've, I think you might know a lot better than I do, but surprising how many times Amazon sellers don't go through their reimbursement requests and say, hey, please give me my money. You destroyed my inventory. <laughs> I want my reimbursement, please. Yeah. Uh, and that's a monitoring error. I've never thought of it this way. This is gold, man. This is it. Really, really is. I'm going to tell you what. Yeah, nobody really tends to talk that much about inventory management because it's not very sexy. Yeah. The people who do, by the way, I think I've had two guests and one who's teed up to be a guest talk about refunds. Yeah. And there's a fourth guy who hasn't even mentioned it on the show, but his he does do them. And yeah, people will pay anywhere between twenty and thirty percent often, and then there's software mm -hmm. like yours that will yeah. flag it up for you. It's just huge. I mean, this is money that technically appears on your balance sheet because it's, it's your money but in terms of cash it's in amazon's account and not yours and it, it, for other marketplaces could be just as bad i don't have that experience yeah honestly it could be a lot i, I had a seller friend who was this is two or three years ago when i think amazon was worse at this but was doing sort of about half a million bucks a month in in revenue and, and sort of in january probably in that q4 employed somebody full-time to get it and they had some like hundred and fifty thousand dollars that amazon owed him i mean if you're doing substantial revenue it can be a lot of money. It's really hugely worth doing. And it's quasi-free money, which is why you can justify paying somebody 25%, because it, otherwise it was just going to sit there. Technically, it's owed to you, and technically, it kind of would appear on a balance sheet, if you're aware of it, of course. Yep. But it's not in your account, so you can go broke whilst actually having a balance sheet accounts receivable of $100,000. So it's absolutely an easy win in the sense that it's just totally worth being 
absolutely on top of that. And Amazon's, you know, reasonably quick to refund you once you actually point out the error. I don't yeah. think they're necessarily trying to defraud you. I haven't got the information to even make an allegation. Mm-hmm. I think it's just they're managing just a monster size operation and they just don't get around mm-hmm. to paying people. <laughs> We've looked at the stats for our tool. It's in Legendary Seller. And we have about a 50% success rate. So when you kick off a reimbursement request, 50% of the time, you'll end up with money back. And I don't remember the exact number of reimbursement total amount we've helped people receive, but it's a ton of money. Yeah, uh, I don't want to quote a number because I'm sure I'll quote wrong, but, <laughs> but it's a lot of money that people have gotten back by just going through the process. And I will just say this, that in your early days of online selling, if you're just starting out, you're much, much better off being methodical about your finances. Oh, yeah. Tracking, using a Google Sheet or an Airtable, really doing a profit and loss state- statement, looking to find how to get a good profit and loss statement template, learning QuickBooks. In your first year, if you do all of that financial management, even though it feels like just drudgery and just like, ah, <laughs> oh, I hate this, it's really, really valuable as you scale because you'll have the habits and the systems in place to say, oh, I always get my money. Oh, I always do a P&L. Oh, I always evaluate my expenses monthly and quarterly. I'm always trimming off dumb expense dollars that I don't need to spend money on. And my profit margin goes up, 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 up in my business because I do all these rigorous actions. That is how people make real, you know, real money from not that huge of sales, you know, from a six figure business or a a low seven figure business, they make a wonderful living because they're locked down on their numbers. A hundred percent. And I agree. Absolutely. So two things, first of all, financial measurement and inventory management are absolutely two sides of the same coin. Because Mm -hmm. if you think about Mm -hmm. it from a balance sheet point of view, um, they are both current assets. So it doesn't actually change your profit and loss, whether something is stored as a widget or as cash, but cash is king therefore if you mess mm-hmm. up your cash flow your business dies mm-hmm. so you absolutely have to know what your where your stock mm-hmm. is and whether you can sell it and the other thing to say is on the question of kind of coming back to this context that i sort of painted at the beginning which is that the bigger picture of which business model you're working on in a lot of ways private labeling or custom products uh, manufacturing is a much more advanced and tricky business model but here's one way in which you have to be much more grown up much quicker as it were as a business person in the stuff you were saying retail arbitrage you can end up with four five hundred six hundred product lines so quickly and being methodical about tracking those is loads harder yeah. Like a lot harder than tracking five or six products that yeah, are private totally. label. So you, uh, yeah. to your point, I couldn't agree more. You have to just make yourself be rigorous. Yeah. And it's not that much fun. But guess what? Profit's nice because you can eat. <laughs> this is one of the biggest paradoxes in business is that some of the most entry level jobs. This is even true in your corporate career because I was in you know you know office job for twenty years. Some of the most entry level jobs are the hardest jobs. And and the the more advanced jobs become easier and easier and easier if you have the skill set to do them. They seemingly become simpler jobs, and it's just a paradox. And uh, but but all that to say, you've got to learn these lessons well about monitoring. Okay, so to recap, we're in three classic stock management errors. The first one was location and understanding. You keep using the phrase, I keep botching, but it's spoilage. Yeah, spoilage errors. Yeah. The second one is monitoring errors. What's the third yeah. error? Third area, and by the way, this is a, a huge area, right? But I've kind of bundled it into one thing. But yeah, this is this is where the grown-up people actually focus. Whether you be starting out from new, as you were studying, saying, mm-hmm. or the, the 
private label sellers that I work with at scale. Um, the third one is count errors. So this is where the biggest numbers of problems and profits come. I'm afraid this is even worse than the other ones. Typos, for example, writing that the pro you've got 1,110 as opposed to, you know, 110 or something. Information not being communica communicated in real time. So then the physical count and reporting systems don't match up and then wrong pricing on an item as well. So the count errors, gen generally speaking, are you know errors in the actual information as opposed to difference between the real world and the, the systems. Now, that is perplexing to me, but I guess it totally makes sense. And I just reflect back on this um, keynote address we had from Scott Needham, who's the co-founder of Buyboxer, who was in our 30-day replenish challenge. He was a keynote speaker this last Monday night. And one of the comments he made was about this idea of testing your prices up as well as down and managing your repricers really, really carefully. And he said one error that he made in his business that was a huge mistake was he started selling $500 items for $50 <laughs> accidentally and liquidated yeah. stock at $50 yeah. because it was a pricing error. So it goes yeah. totally to your point. So I guess Marvin knows what he's talking about with these. This guy really does. I mean, he's errors. not a name that's big in the Amazon world. I don't think he's really focused on that, but I, I, he's a very competent chap. I mean, he, this was really wow. a very, this is why I brought it forward. I think yeah. of all the stuff I brought today, it's probably the least sexy and it's going to require the most grunt work and it's probably the most important to your business because wow. without getting this right and he said that some some crazy statistics inventory distortion across retail in, in america alone is a one trillion dollar a year loss wow. the average retailer in the usa has an accuracy rate what do you think it is give me a percentage here 80 percent. i'd kind of hope for that right apparently it's 62 percent. wow yeah. now how are you defining accuracy rate he's got a lot of metrics so maybe he's being a bit harsh but you know in other words this is a serious problem for yeah. people who you know manage big businesses hence why amazon messes it up all the time and they give you refunds because amazon's very meticulous they have great systems there are systems and process obsessed company i would say they're driven yeah. by a physicist who works at wall street he's obsessed but nevertheless it's really hard wow. so all you got to do is just increase that accuracy over time and, and starting small and being close to 100 percent accurate when you have a really small amount of inventory maybe gives you a fighting chance where you have a bigger set of inventory so it reinforces what you were saying which is keeping really accurate records from day one i would love to learn more about that marvin harris three yeah. classic stock management errors yeah uh, is that the name of the podcast episode? the name of the podcast was inventory management and e-commerce with marvin harris of okay. ovals with a z Okay, so yeah awesome. not not very exciting but but it, gosh yes yeah, so important <laughs> terrific okay let's keep going Hey folks, hope you've enjoyed yet another episode of The E-Commerce Leader. I certainly have enjoyed revisiting some of the really marvellous experts that I've heard over the last few years. And today, I think there's a lot to take in. I'm aware of that. And I guess that's the nature of a type of podcast like this, where you cover a lot of different topics. Some in more detail than I was expecting. And we've obviously deep dived into stock management. And Marvin Harris of Ovals with a Z or a Z was, uh, I thought, a very, very good guest on this. He's actually not particularly Amazon-centric. He's a consultant but has worked in retail. And as you can tell from even the second-hand information you've had from me today really uh, a lot of grown-up stuff as it were and I, I use that's a very patronizing phrase it's one of my many faults as a person and as a podcaster and as a consultant but i guess what i mean by the word grown-up is uh, stuff that by the way i find hard to do which is to say to be meticulous and to take your business seriously enough that it is robust and professionally run 
So stock management's not something I've ever been a genius at, and a lot of my clients struggle with it as well. But it's very, very noticeable that more professional people who have it as their living and are building businesses to sell sometimes as well are very meticulous about this stuff, and it is really important. So do really listen to Marvin Harris's uh, interview with me on amazingfba.com if you get a chance, if you're in any way serious about scaling this thing up. The other things we've talked about, kind of in reverse order, we talked about the nature of Amazon selling with Jason Boyce and really mentioned Rick Cesari today because it wasn't the thing that, that particularly stood out uh, in the particular concepts I was trying to get across today. But Rick Cesari is a marketing um, genius. I guess really there were two things. First of all, the nature of Amazon selling and um, the fact that it's really tough and Amazon is a fierce competitor and the fact that you kind of, in Jason Boyce's view, anyway, need to be on Amazon. If you're not on Amazon, you're not online, as he puts it. And the solution to that is really to gradually develop more and more unique and differentiated products. And we talked about the whole the the journey of business models from reselling through wholesale to brand building. The more you get into the brand building world, the more Rick Cesare's expertise is relevant, which is all about amazing, high quality, direct response branding, or in fact, what he calls direct branding, which is a blend of direct response like EVC and indeed Amazon is very much direct response selling. And also branding work where you build up the connection with your brand and the feel and the price point and the quality of your brand as well. So again, those two, they wrote the, a book recently that they brought out together called The Amazon Jungle. Really, really worth checking out. The other guests that I referenced today, three other guests were Dylan Frost about the private label and wholesale business models and uh, you know the comparison of the two, the characteristics they have. And I think for those who are in Jason's replens system or in the earlier stages of moving through Amazon selling, that's particularly worth considering that. Also for the more advanced sellers who have got wholesale type sourcing arrangements and are moving into private label, also quite a few of my clients over the years, those also need to be aware of on a sort of macro level, the difference or the 30,000, 50,000 foot view, if you like, the differences between the models. Because actually of what I've found is that if you uh, do a lot of wholesale sourcing and you start doing private label selling, it you can be into habits that you're not even aware of because you've been doing them potentially for decades that are great for wholesale, but don't really apply to private label. And for example, the amount of brand building work you need to do as a private label seller is a heap more than just reselling other people's products. So again, Dylan Frost is the guy that I interviewed for that of The Wholesale Formula. I've also talked to Dylan Carter, D-I-L-L-O-N, different Dylan spellings just to confuse you. And I've also talked to Trent Deersmit, D-Y-R-S-M-I-D. So those three are the real sort of wholesale experts. If that's a model that interests you or if you're doing replens or arbitrage or something and you want to move on to the next level, those particularly would be good three, three guests to check out in the amazing FBA sort of podcast back catalogue, which, as we've said, is huge now. The other people that I talked to, Kevin King, who is a very, very big name in the Amazon world, and he talks about the fact that you should potentially be looking at product lines or rather marketplaces, different keyword clusters, I suppose, that are driven by lots of long tail keywords. So you've got a lot of different ways into the house, as he puts it, lots of different windows. And that makes a lot of sense. That's a keyword strategy that's really applied in Google really since, I guess, the early 2000s and is really relevant on Amazon now as it gets more and more competitive as well. 
definitely worth again listening to pretty much everything kevin king has to say i think he's a very very sharp guy despite i must say him being a quotes amazon guru because when i first spoke to him he wasn't at all he was an amazon seller who was persuaded onto my podcast by a mutual friend he's since come become to be positioned as a guru type by manny coates of helium 10 primarily and a very good trainer he is too but you know even off air away from the cameras as it were he's definitely a guy who totally knows his stuff so the next and not least person was Stephen Summers, lovely, charming Irish guy, quite a different style and take on private labeling from Kevin King, but also very good on the product selection thing. And he had a rather different take on how defining a winner. And I think defining whether a product's a winner or not is a really critical thing that is is neglected or messed up, shall we say, by both people at the very early, early stages who don't even have a product live yet. And also by those who've been in business for several years, sometimes for a long time, and who are selling products that frankly don't hit any kind of success criteria, except they have some kind of revenue. And that's not really, in my opinion, quite enough. So let's just say that's a rabbit hole that goes deep. But Stephen Summers was particularly thinking about when people launch a new private label product. And really, his definition was pretty robust, which is that you double the investment within nine months of making the investment, which I think is actually both very sensible, reasonably robust, but actually putting the bar reasonably low compared to some of the, I I would like to think in 2021, old school, but still taught methods, which is when people make promises like you'll replace your day job within a year, day job of $100,000 in personal income or worse. If somebody's telling you that, I just think you've got to walk the other way. I'm so sorry. Yes, it's theoretically possible. It's not likely. I've seen somebody do that, but they did not invest the, the you know, $3,000 or something. They invested tens of thousands and it's a high risk strategy. So yeah, <laughs> defining a winner in a realistic way is great. I, I think that's the middle ground. I'm a passionate moderate. I'm a big believer in robust middle ground thinking claiming that you're going to replace your day job in a year if you're starting from scratch is i think rubbish and disingenuous frankly which is a polite word for other things and then on the other hand having no criteria for success at all can simply mean that you keep going forever and you know at some point you have to call it <laughs> so those are the concepts we talked about today coming up in the second part of this discussion are some wonderful psychological drives for image marketing from daisy uh, pollard and some great fulfillment ideas if you have to deal with outside the fba world the idea of fulfilling products yourself working in your business not on it and some e-commerce trends for 2021 so stay tuned as ever if you've enjoyed today's episode the first thing i would say is well obviously check out the amazing fba podcast if you haven't already because this reminds me because i forget that there's an awful lot of wisdom in there and that's not i can say that not because it's not about me it's about the experts that i've interviewed over the years and there is a great deal of expertise there a lot of it is very sort of time specific so i wouldn't start using strategies and tactics from 2014 directly which is when i first started podcasting 2015 i should say on the other hand there is a lot of evergreen stuff and it's particularly for the last couple of years very very important concepts that you can learn from these super sharp guys i've had the privilege of interviewing so lovely to talk it over with jason today as ever don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it as in the e-commerce e leader and uh, don't forget to leave us a rating on apple Podcasts if you're on that platform as well thanks for listening that was the e-commerce leader podcast with michael vesey in london england and jason miles in seattle washington 
If you liked this content, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. For free resources, including PDFs and videos on topics like traffic, products, and sales channels, just go to www.theecommerceleader.com. No hyphens, just as it sounds. Thanks so much for listening.